Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and psych and child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, guys. And we're also joined by our guest, special guest co-host tonight, Dr. Alan Atkins. He's a second-year psychiatry resident who studies nature-based therapy and the role that it plays in the alleviation of mass incarceration. Hi, Alan. Hi, Dr. Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, lucky we have Dr. Alan Atkins, because it's going to be on nature-based therapy, a topic that I know nothing about, which is, uh, I, I think most people don't know a lot about it. I'm just speculating. You'll say I know very this. little bit about it, too, actually. I was just thinking right now, when was the first time I heard about it? And it was actually because one of the residents in my program had been, um, had entered a nature-based therapy program after um, exiting an inpatient hospital, psychiatric hospitalization himself. He basically was discharged. Upon discharge, walking out of the hospital, some people came up, basically put him in a van, and then he was in a nature-based therapy program. I'm not sure. I don't know what the details are. You, you'll have to, like, um, give us some information about, like, what all that entails. But, um, yeah, I'm really interested in hearing... The way that you said about that, it, because Tosha. he liked he liked it. He oh. said it was helpful. The way you, to you follow. It, you, you well, put, I mean, yeah, exactly. It, it's very, um, it's different from other types of therapy. Yes, but did he didn't put, know what was happening. So it, that sounded like it's almost involuntary, but he but he ended up liking it. Yeah, this is going to be interesting discussion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so see, why don't we start with that? Um, so, Alan, what? What is nature-based therapy? Maybe a bit of history, perhaps? Sure. Um, so talk about the value of nature and the diminishing role of nature in human life has been going on since industrialization, but I imagine that it may even have started earlier before we really knew how to document these kind of things like there may have been reminiscent talk of the the diminishing role in of nature and human life since the agricultural revolution um but but you know formally nature-based therapy has become a, a more and more promoted idea as nature has diminished more and more from human life well that's one of those uh, cross-cultural um aspects that uh, you can see where there's there's this respect and kind of like awe, a sense of awe of nature and appreciation of nature. You see that in all cultures all over the world. Um, so your thought is that that, like uh, maybe perhaps people have evolved to have this kind of connection of nature. And then as we've, as industrialization has happened, as we've become more separated from that, as we've, as we've um, that we've distanced both. Absolutely. Uh, just, Absolutely. And okay. I think the sort of psyche the role of a human as we've sort of developed our psyches is in some way thinking about our mastery over the, our spatial surroundings and our, or actually I w I'm not even sure I'd want to use the word mastery, but our, our 
effective relationship with our surroundings, um, hopefully in a harmonious way. And one that, that really, I think, is intricately linked with nature. So does nature have anything to teach us? Is that part of this? Like if we, do yeah. you feel like a more con- a connection with nature that, they, that people can absorb or intuit some, um, some greater truths perhaps or something that they can apply to their own lives or lifestyle that, that can improve their mental health or their functioning or their life somehow or their level of happiness or mood? Absolutely. And I, I don't want to get mystical here, right? We don't need to get mystical. That's the great thing. We don't need to get mystical in order for this to have huge explanatory power. If and only if nature is um, valuable, one, because it has been shown to just be valuable in and of itself. I mean, even studies like just having people look at a picture of nature versus other control groups of valuable activities have shown positive results. But there's that plus let's say i'll just take one of the many other values of nature that is sorely lacking in our lives right now which is some time with less stimulation to reflect is enormously valuable and so a lot of the way a lot of the types of nature-based therapy so so nature-based therapy is a huge group of therapies including wilderness therapy including adventure therapy and it's it's a it's a it's a term for basically all therapies involving nature not just as the setting for but as the theme for the therapy and um yeah nature-based therapy doesn't need to be described in mystical terms in order to quite obviously work well and and potentially work better than other things that would in that would entail the same cost and an amount of resources as nature-based therapies Wow, interesting. Yeah, my mind is just um, I'm thinking, you know, one of the things that they found with epidemiological studies of the prevalence of mental illness is typically um, uh, uh, native folks uh, um, have lower levels of mental health conditions. The prevalence is lower. The rates are lower. Now, do you, is, that, is there any speculation? Is there any link because they're they're more connected with nature or they're more in tune with nature or something like that? Or, and how would you describe that? That's actually can... surprising to me because I, I had thought that at least for uh, American Indians or Native Americans uh, that they had, you know, there were really high rates of um, like, uh, alcoholism and I think suicide. Mm-hmm. And, and that would make a lot of sense to me given the amount of uh, systemic oppression that they've experienced in the United States, but I, I do think that well, because um, the separation from nature and the connection with with nature. That's, that's a that. nice point. That's yeah. a nice point. Yeah, separation from nature as they've experienced it, the the sort of parceling off of land in a way that doesn't allow people to to wander as is needed, you know, by moving herds and um. But yeah, yeah what I, I, think I meant to that say could, that yeah. I meant to say Sorry, that, um, like, like when, like um, uh, when, when people, when um, uh, people study, uh, you know, tribes in um, the Amazon forests, things like that, you know, when there's no industrialization at all, then and then they do, they study them and they they find out and they try to get make some determination of how much mental health issues are going on there. They find very low rates. 
That's so cool. There's so many questions that come to my head about how they do those studies and they must have to employ so much creativity and figuring out how to assess the mental health outcomes. That would be a really cool team to be able to be a part of. And then there's also the question of like, oh, but are we interrupting their culture by studying them? And man, what a fascinating idea, right? To study these sort of like cultures that have had minimal contact with. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, now one of the reasons we're talking about this is because I have, you know, I'm just be honest, I've never heard about this before. Not really, not not in this kind of terminology. And so it's good to, and we, we try to talk about things no one ever talks about, but so I'm good, but I'm also gonna talk about something uh, as far as like, what have you applied personally? Is that, I, I don't say anything that you're not comfortable saying, but what can we all take from this that we can maybe I'm, apply to our own lives? Sure, I, I'm very comfortable talking about this. Okay, good, good. Um, so I was a complicated kid and I grew up backpacking and doing a lot of nature stuff. And when I was in high school, I decided to live in the woods and I I wasn't able to completely do it. I was still going, my, my high school was right next to the a, a pretty large mountain range. And I was able to just sort of basically be on extended camping trips. But when I needed to come home to my parents' house for recharging, I could, and I would still go to high school. But I was able to kind of get that experience and um, you get prolonged periods of looking yourself in the eye. You get a sense of self-efficacy external to just your peers and you live in a, in a fairly closed system where you face the consequences of your actions pretty immediately or what I believe uh, Dreikers would have called natural consequences. Um, you get pretty much daily a sense of serenity and and kind of a built-in meditative aspect and i could go on and on and on i mean but it's it's you know it's adventure and it's it's uh exciting and you create this relationship with this external system where you grow and you learn to interact in a competent way and self-esteem boosting as well absolutely and that's one of the findings that's pretty bulletproof that we for for patient populations so from there i started getting into uh, i've been for since undergrad i think for i don't know i guess 10 years i've been kind of playing with ideas of how i couldn't be involved in um doing nature-based therapy for populations that i think could benefit from a different masculinity model um, so I, in undergrad, I studied toxic masculinity. So to, or, and, or the, the scientific term is hypermasculinity. So hypermasculinity is four things. It's women are inferior, violence is manly, emotion is weakness, and danger is exciting. If you have those four, you're more likely to turn negative life events into antisocial behaviors like sexual assault and violence. And so you think about the United States right wait, now. Wait, wait, wait. Could we go through those a little bit more slowly? <laughs> For sure. I want to process Let's that a do little that. bit more because that's really interesting to me. Okay. All right. So number one, women are – I don't know. The, no, there's no order. They're all sure. or equal. Okay. So number one, women are inferior. Okay. Number two, violence is manly. Number three, danger is exciting. Number four, emotion is weakness. Now, all of these are things that you might find in any individual man might have one or two of them. You need the four, you need to sky, score high on all four to really score high on toxic masculinity or hypermasculinity measures. Toxic masculinity is not really a scientific word. I mean, that's but. interesting because when you were first talking about masculinity in my mind, you know, before you went on to really like define it, but um, like the toxic part, but when I think of masculinity, I do think of wilderness. So I wasn't expecting you to go there with the 
toxic part, but absolutely, um, yeah. So how do how does the toxic masculinity relate to the wilderness aspect? Right. Like how do, or how does the wilderness aspect fit into a masculine idea? So so let me be specific because I think specifics are fun. So let's paint a picture here. So we we would be talking about a specific nature based therapy now, most likely called wilderness therapy. So wilderness therapy is a backpacking trip, and let's talk about how. I'm going to just shamelessly self-promote here and talk about kind of my vision for how this might pan out if what I yeah. hope to be able to enact in the Go future happen. And Why some, not? You have the mic. I appreciate <laughs> it. And, and, and some of this is already going on. So this, this is already going on to some extent in the correction system. So let's say you get some kids who have had less than all the advantages that we have and they, they you know joined gangs and ended up having their idea of masculinity largely formed in the gang where you know often your um your jumped in or your initiation has to do with uh, enacting a violent act on someone else or several and you may have ptsd from uh losing friends to various gang battles and you know i'm i'm no i don't have to talk about a specific person because this describes probably like 50 percent of the patients i saw before i change careers and so you so this is specifically looking at wilderness therapy in the context of a forensic setting right and i used to do nature-based therapy with these kids but what i'd like to do is actually wilderness therapy with these kids wilderness therapy is the backpacking trips and and yeah and and so you think of into the wild or think are they except the guy dies at the end but or think of the the film wild with cheryl Strait or the you know pacific crest trail appalachian trail type thing you've got five six people in a in a group with a few leaders who are you know have some clinical psychology training and also have some wilderness skills and maybe can play guitar and they're going out and every day you have um your work that you have to do during the day right so you have to gather the wood and you have to prepare the food and you have to figure out the shelter, whatever the needs are, and you're going to be proud that you know you're sleeping on a bed that you created, and you're being warm based on the fire you created, and you're tired, and you can sleep at night. But you're also in a closed system with accountability, so your buddies are around. And if you decide to be a jerk, one, you have to live with them for the next three months, and two, there, you know, okay, tomorrow you might need help with the firewood. Let's say you get a blister. Let's say something happens, you're, you might need their help. So there's a real closed system with a higher level of accountability. Um, and people are really, it's very, um, promote, it's, it promotes pro-social behavior. Um, so there's that. And then now let's picture the evening rolls around. Let's say you could bring one iP- iPad with a solar panel and everyone gets one hour on it and you really stress to people, what are you gonna do with this hour? You could and, and and there's freedom, right? You could you could go on Facebook, or you could um, you could go on whatever on Twitter. But hey, maybe you want to look up how to build a fire better since it's been a week and you guys still haven't figured out how to stay warm. Mm. Um, and then you start getting people into like, oh, hey, I can actually learn things on the internet. And oh. maybe there's and and you know every night would be a, a few maybe three or four therapy groups, and this is seen as a time to rest and people um there's a lot less i'm too cool for this when you're out there in the middle of nowhere and this is your connection to the social world right and all of a sudden you start to see enormous transformation there's nothing but time to look yourself in the eye um there's really only room for forward progress people are all going to feel a sense of progress because you put someone in the woods for a week they for sure are going to know more about the woods than they did a week ago you know so where is this being used 
Okay. Wait, but so, before we before we go there, thank you, Alan. Let me just let me just give a, a kind of identifier. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about nature therapy and wilderness-based therapy now with Dr. Alan Atkins, um, who's done a lot of research and, and applied some of the principles himself. Uh, so I'm sorry, Tosha. I just interrupted you. Those are, I feel like I've been interrupting myself, honestly, because this is so interesting. Like my whole question about the toxic masculinity and then where does wilderness fit into masculinity? I think we kind of skipped over, but I do want to go back to that. Let's do that. Okay. All right. Let's do that and then talk about where wilderness therapy is used. Let me get personal here. So okay. so I'm 5'9", I'm and I wasn't great at, uh, you know, my friends were in football. Uh, some of my friends were in basketball and then... I guess other of my friends were in band, but, but, you know, I, I was feeling acutely in high school, the fact that I wasn't able to do some of these things. And I looked at the menu. I mean, I don't know that I consciously did this. I probably did, but I looked at the menu of what's around that could make me masculine. And of course, violence is a choice, right? Uh, and then sports are a choice. Some of which you could argue have violence built in. Um, I think, you know, right now looking at the football and the, and the helmet stuff, like, you know, there's a lot of, and whether or not people can wear pads, there's, anyway, there's, there's, I think toxic masculinity can be seen all over U.S. culture in, in a lot of different ways. But I ended up choosing the woods, which I think was a brand of masculinity that involved an emphasis on gaining wisdom, on reflection, on sort of a quiet, um, a quiet vision of masculinity, which has its own problems because stoicism is part of that toxic masculinity thing, right? That emotion is weakness. And we want it, we want to be raising expressive, emotionally intelligent, communicative men. But other than that, um, I think the wilderness vision of masculinity is a very helpful one. And one that's largely in the U S only been offered to white males and I mean, as yeah, there was a recently an event in Los Angeles called Is Nature for White People, which I found really kind of wonderful and enlightening where there's a whole bunch of different groups that are trying to change that narrative now and trying to make this available to all all folks. So you're saying that wilderness, you know, like traditionally uh, in the traditional context is obviously um, seen as a masculine pastime but in this situation we're tweaking it into being a, a more expressive a, a setting for expressive communication yeah that's a great way to put it a setting for expressive communication a setting for growth in a lot of different ways a setting where um, you're more directly dependent on your sort of semi-parental figures than you would be at home where you can yell at mom and then ask her to take you to the mall and you can have this weird power struggle. There's a much more direct kind of value of your parent figures um, in wilderness therapy because they're the ones with the nature skills. They're the ones with the first aid kit who know how to use it. And there's a very natural, unmanipulative kind of, hey, these people are really clearly helping you every day. So try to respect them. And um, Wait, are you talking about this in a literal sense? Like there's family options, family-based therapy options? No, it's no. I'm talking about in a figurative sense oh, of like okay. these people are um, kind of your family on the trail. These people okay. are – they are adult figures who hopefully will symbolize in the, the mind of, of the patients kind of other figures who they may see as 
uh, mentors or parent figures and who they may be able to apply kind of a, a relationship transference to, meaning they may learn different ways of interacting with their authority figures. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What about women? Where do women fit in? Can, can this be co-ed? Is it, I, does it work best where the genders are separated? It's a good question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, you know, the scouts have recently become co-ed. Um, and in many countries, scouts are co-ed. My mom grew up in co-ed scouts. There is the question. In Israel. In Israel, yeah. The, the question is um, about sex, of course, right? And sex can happen whether or not you have the both sexes there or not. But um, if the group is small enough, real supervision can be present a lot of the time, which for especially for higher acuity stuff is needed. Um, I think I'm tempted to say that if I were starting a program right now, I'd probably have the sexes separated, but both sexes show improvement after these things. Um, there is more of like a, an ego syntonic, which or sort of like people, um, it's, it's more in line with the male gender role in our culture to be like a master of the woods. So men tend to be more enthusiastic about it, especially in the involuntary programs boys seem to be you know less horrified that all of a sudden they're on this super long camping trip that they didn't really sign up for so i think we have an understanding of what wilderness or nature-based therapy is specifically wilderness therapy um, more in depth but what about when comparing it to different types of therapy do we have data on that like efficacy um risks that sort of thing yeah so okay so there are risks um the, I think the okay so so a few people die in these programs every year um, it globally From what? Uh, oh, various so and and then the same and a few people die in the Boy Scouts every year and like growing up I was in the Boy Scouts growing up um, you know and and you know yeah someone was uh, killed by a, be- a bear near my house I um, mean when you're when you do these things you can die from them in the same way that like I would imagine a few people die in cars on the way to therapy sessions each year or being in transport between um, between residential facilities, right? Like a few people dying every year in a field with, uh, just in the U S 10,000 patients yearly. I don't know. I haven't run the statistics on that, but maybe because I'm so biased towards yeah, well, I think pro it's, nature, it doesn't scare me too much. Yeah, it's, it's good to point out that it's not because of the actual therapy themselves. They're not making people um, walk for 30 miles barefoot, you know, with no, an 80 no. pound pack, and that's why they died. They, you know, or and go I want to differentiate. Yeah, so there is that too. There's, so there's, there's uh, wilderness therapy, and there's adventure camps, and then there's another thing. Um, and the other thing can be called boot camp models or alternative boarding schools. And those have to be watched with a closer eye. And those have been shown to be less authoritative and more authoritarian, meaning mm-hmm. less of you're wrong and here's why and let me mount you into being right and more of you're wrong and you're bad. And, and they use a little more of a, build you, or a break you down and then build you up model and a little more, a bit more of a military model. And that has been potentially more fraught with yeah not great outcomes i feel like i have go ahead is this kind of on the same plane as military schools then yeah and so the 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 thing i would kind of emphasize there is you can do a boot camp anywhere i mean people do boot camps in hangars and old gyms and whatever and it's real popular a lot of people like being yelled at by a coach but that's not what this is right And, and the places that market themselves as nature therapy the part we care about is the nature. We don't require, nor do we want people to be getting yelled at by some overzealous 
person who fancies themselves masculine. This is really important for consumers of, of this therapy. I feel like um, boot camp therapy is detrimental. You, a lot of times, I, I, it's, it's actually been on the list of detrimental therapies, harmful therapies, um, because of how, uh, because pe you know, people have been hurt or harmed, and you're right, it's, it's based on this military model of breaking people down. Um, and, and and my resentment for it is is marked because it takes down the wilderness therapies image in the public eye with it. And for me, this is something. For, for, by the way, I should say this: only in the U.S. is wilderness therapy something that's considered at all complicated or controversial. And that has to do with mm -hmm. two things: one is what you just mentioned, and the other is something that has nothing to do with nature-based therapy. It's the fact that in the U that in the U.S. we have not uh, we're not party to um, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so although we were one of the only countries, I think one of two or maybe the only country in the world that hasn't signed this. And so what is that? in the UN, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to say too much because I don't know too much. But the U.S. is the only UN member that has signed but is not party to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, meaning that a parent, in the same way that we, can, that we as psychiatrists can um, hospitalize someone against their will, that can be done to a kid if the parents say so, but without a psychiatrist needing to say this needs to happen. It can just, parents can just say stuff and it'll happen for the kid without um, there needing to be real, okay. like, without you needing to have like a real hold criteria like you would with an adult. So if All a right. parent. You're saying that's happening in other countries or in our country? In our country. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk parent, about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because so the, 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 the per, putting the person in the van thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Right. Now we right, need to return to that. Putting the person in the van. Yeah, <laughs> so if a parent believes that their child, and, and, you know, for the most part, you trust the goodwill of parents, right? Um, there was some issues with this 10 years ago, and it was highly publicized, and I think it was blown way out of proportion. There's some percentage where the parents are overzealous, or maybe they're convinced by an overzealous company that this is really what their kids need, but this is supposed to be a last resort. This is a residential therapy, just like any other residential therapy, right? Mm -hmm. This is, a, if you're doing involuntary wilderness therapy, you should think about it as an involuntary therapy, just like residential treatment. And the studies have shown that people who fail residential treatment multiple times do benefit from wilderness therapy. And it's thought to oh, be, interesting. yeah, so this has, this is a real effective thing as a last resort, but it's a last resort. And there's many options for nature-based therapy that aren't wilderness therapy, but wilderness therapy does happen to be the highest level of care and it requires respect and it requires, it's, it's a thing that it's, it's risks are outweighed by its benefits for a certain population, but it's got a lot of problems that right. still need to be worked out. I think it's helpful for me to conceptualize nature-based therapy or wilderness therapy as a residential treatment. I haven't thought of it in that way. I was comparing it to like CBT, which is apples to oranges apparently. So there is also that, right? And there is also that level of care that's voluntary. So, and, and tons of people do it in gap years between college. There's non-clinical ones, there's clinical ones, you know, Outward Bound and National Knowles. Uh, um, you know, there there's a lot of, of there's, there, you know, this is a huge international market now for, for people wanting to do these semester long or month long wilderness courses. Mm -hmm. um, but, wilderness therapy as its own kind of known entity 
is for the kid who has not has been intractable from from anything else and their parents are totally desperate and they have no idea what to do and they're afraid they're kind gonna of lose like getting oppositional defiant disorder Acts, exactly. conduct disorder does exactly. it help for conduct disorder i don't know but what what actually i can say this so there was a study um i don't know if here I, yeah i think i have the name of the study there was a study done that basically showed that Oh, I, um, I guess I should just um, point out, we, we are running out of time, but the difference between oppositional de- defiant disorder and conduct disorder, you could just kind of simplify to oppositional defiant disorder is um, when kids are defiant, they, they, they break rules, they um, rebel against authority figures, um, and then conduct disorder can be more like... Um, like one-to-one uh, invasion of you know rights or like breaking right like stealing it's more from severe someone or more, yeah. yeah stealing from someone being physically cruel to animals things like that it could be a yeah. precursor to kind uh, of along the path oh, antisocial okay. personality right they're on the path to antisocial so so there was a study that looked at um, it was by Clark and Marmol and this it is the last at, last study. Okay, sure. Sorry, we're going so right to end. This here. basically determined that the reason that people that kids were failing a lot of these therapies was that they have personality disorder traits and that the therapies don't address them and that th- those traits which kept them from succeeding in other therapies are actually addressed by wilderness therapy. And that's the last word. Thank you Alan so much for coming on here and talking about nature-based therapy and wilderness therapy in particular. You've been listening to Let's Get Psyched. Thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi, and our special guest co-host, Dr. Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.